we have kind of a what we call a covenant to lead in our in our firm, um, and that is when someone comes to work for us, <clears throat> and this is not just this is us generally, not just our firm. You basically make a covenant with that person, and that covenant is, I promise to support you in helping you reach your fullest potential while you're with us. And that employee comes to the firm and says, I promise to give my best in order to reach my fullest potential while I'm with you. Um, that's kind of the covenant. If we could actually adhere to that covenant, we would not have to have these conversations, right? We wouldn't have 17 million leadership books written um, because that fundamentally is giving people what they need to be wildly successful, which only benefits you in the end too. Welcome to another episode of the Leading to Fulfillment podcast, where everything we talk about is meant to encourage people-first leaders, empower individuals to achieve fulfillment, and to help your organizations become places people love to work. I'm your host, James Laws, and I have a great show in store for you. My guest for this episode is Trisha Dow. Trisha is the founder and CEO of Empowered, a firm that partners with C-suites and managing partners to think plan, and execute strategically for the purpose of accelerated and sustainable growth. She also partners with larger firms to create success for women and diverse people who are entering leadership positions. She holds a law degree from Case Western Reserve University and a business degree from Miami University and regularly writes and speaks on a variety of topics, including authenticity and leadership, high-impact teams, creating growth cultures, diversity and inclusion, and many more. In my conversation with Trisha, we discuss the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion in fulfillment, how companies can create diverse, equitable, and inclusive cultures, a deeper look at that word inclusion, and how leaders can be better at leading diverse teams. But first, I want to invite you to subscribe and leave a review for the Leading to Fulfillment podcast uh, in your favorite podcast tool. We're on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, or you can even watch us over on YouTube. Now, let's jump into my conversation with Trisha Dow. Trisha, thank you so much for being on the Leading to Fulfillment podcast today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I, I'm really excited about this conversation. We talk about fulfillment. We talk about diversity, inclusion a lot on the show. And you talk about this a lot. But for those who have not uh, heard of you before, perhaps, uh, those of our listeners who are new that didn't follow you over here to hear the wisdom that you have to share and are hearing you for the first time, could you give us a little bit of a background about who you are and what you do? Yes, my name is Trisha Dow, and I run a company called Empowered. We are a people... Uh, culture DEI advisory firm. So we do a lot of consulting uh, assessment uh, around culture and people, um, strategic implementation and change management around people, performance management, leadership development, professional development, and ultimately metrics on how we we make sure we're accountable to what we said we would do. That's that's awesome. Uh, 
when we, you know, when I started this podcast, my my main focus had always been I wanted to help leaders who wanted to lead teams towards fulfillment, wanted to not worry necessarily. I mean, engagement is important, but I don't think engagement is the most important thing. And I think the employee experience is important, but I don't also think that's the most important thing. I think fulfillment at its core, teams that are successful are teams that are fulfilled in their role and in their personal lives. And I think work culture has a lot to do with that. I'm wonder what is what is the relationship you see between fulfillment of individual team members uh, among organizations who make DEI a priority and those who don't? Yeah. Well, I guess, first of all, and if I make one major point in this whole conversation, it is this. Um, if you are not making DEI, which stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion, part of your culture and people strategy, then you really don't have a very good people and culture strategy. Like they, they are, they are inextricably tied together. Um, so that's number one. Um, we have kind of a, what we call a covenant to lead in our, in our firm. Um, and that is when someone comes to work for us and this is not just, this is us generally, not just our firm. You basically make a covenant with that person. And that covenant is, I promise to support you in helping you reach your fullest potential while you're with us. And that employee comes to the firm and says, I promise to give my best in order to reach my fullest potential while I'm with you. Um, that's kind of the covenant. If we could actually adhere to that covenant, we would not have to have these conversations, right? We wouldn't have 17 million leadership books written. Um, because that fundamentally is giving people what they need to be wildly successful, which only benefits you in the end too. So that's kind of where we started with it. I I love that covenant and that statement. I think that is at the heart of people first leadership that recognizes when you bring someone onto a team, you are you are bringing them on to serve them, to be their best and to have the best. And if you focus on that, they of course are going to give you their best, uh, and and I think that's such a such a powerful kind of covenant. That's like, hey, I'm here to give you is all the opportunities that I possibly can for you to grow and become the fullness of who you want to be, not who I want you to be, but who you want to be. And in turn, you are going to invest that into our purpose and the things that we work on and the products and services and customers that we serve. And I think that's, that is really, really amazing as far as a covenant goes. And what I wonder is uh, what are, what are some of the mistakes that companies make as they are looking at the landscape of their culture, their corporate culture, and they want to improve it and they want to be better. What are some of the pitfalls that companies make in that pursuit? Well, I guess, first of all, if they're already wanting it, they've probably had some level of self-reflection, which is number one. Like if you have no ability to self-reflect, it's very hard to do this well. Um, the mindset shift that has to happen, right? So that covenant is really about mindset shifting. Um, if you really think employees are there because you're paying them, and that is the extent of your relationship, it's never going to be great for you. Like seeing people as literally bodies getting work done for you is not leadership. That is management of work. Um, so, but you know, in our work, the things we see the most are a real lack of transparency 
um, transparent. I work with mostly very conservative uh, places. You know, we do a lot of professional service firms. We do a lot of um, law firms and accounting firms and financial services firms. And they are, you know, sometimes people are afraid to make mistakes so they don't make any decisions. That's a bad decision. <laughs> so, a lack of communication and transparency is huge. What does that in- entail? Absolutely everything. What we're trying, what the vision of our firm is. Because if you can keep the vision of your firm aligned with what most people are compelled to be there for, even for themselves, then you're, that's where the magic happens, right? When you marry those two things together, my personal vision and the firm vision. Um, communicating firm vision, communicating what the big things are that are changing in the way we're doing business and the way we're serving clients and the way whatever is happening. Um, my performance management. People don't want to show up and have no idea where they stand professionally. Um, what my career path is. Career pathing should not be this weird murky fog of a path that no one understands what's really happening until they get to the very end. So those are the big ones, you know, creating a culture where people can be fully themselves. You know, I, (laughs) I spent the first half of my life, my career, my professional life in a very conservative environment, made partner in that environment, but I was kind of molded into what I was supposed to be to be successful there. When I got out and started my own firm, it was like two years before I felt like I was completely myself again, like able to express opinions openly, able to flex into using different parts of my talents effectively. Um, and that should be the way every culture is, right? We, we get to show up and we get to broaden what we're able to do in powerful ways that benefit both us and the people we work for. You know, something that you said there, I find, you know, interesting because I've seen it myself and I I probably in my, in my history have fallen victim or or trapped into that same cycle too, right? Is this idea that like employment is not a transaction and employers and leaders who see it as a transaction are going to fail. It's the great resignation is a great kind of example of a bunch of, leaders who have saw employment as a transaction. I pay you and you do exactly what I tell you to do. And, you know, we've, I've said this, I don't know how many times on the show, this idea of like, we don't pay you to think, but you should be paying your people to think. And if you're not, and that's, and that comes to something that you said, when we hire someone, we are hiring the whole person, all of them, all of their experiences, all of their history, all of their personal knowledge, as well as their professional knowledge. And that's actually valuable. And I, I wonder how many organizations are still struggling with seeing the whole person as valuable and not just this vocational professional segment of the person. And, and I wonder, how do, you, how do you see organizations dealing with that kind of stuff? I think it's a really hard, difficult road for them. And and I think a lot of firms are trying to get it right. It's just that it requires something different of us completely to see someone as fully themselves coming to our firm instead of not just issues we have to handle. Like if you think about what we've had to do in the pandemic to be viable um, and turning to a much more digital space in the way we do everything, um, we've had purview into people's personal lives in ways we never have before, you know, um, that has, you know, that, that, that separation between professional and personal life is now like this very thin veil. Uh, and that's never going back to the way it was. 
So we are being asked as leaders to show up very differently than we did two years ago. Um, and our people expect us to help them manage their personal lives so they can show up per professionally the way we need them to. And that is a, a task and kind of an, a, an offering for leaders that is actually becoming mandatory for those who don't want to have a great resignation in their, in their companies. You have to help people personally become who they want to be so they can be professionally who they're, who they're meant to be. Yeah. And, and obviously we've seen a lot of organizations struggle to do that. Uh, you, you see it through all of the callbacks, right? All of these people calling people back into the office, even though they have determined and the science is clear on this, uh, that their people are just as productive, if not more productive in their own homes. They don't want to go back into the office. And that's not everyone. Some people like an office environment. And uh, I was one of those people in the early stages of building my own business. I liked the office environment, but I liked it because it's the only way I knew how to lead because it was the culture I had been raised in. I'd always been raised in a, in a corporate in office environment. And so I knew how to lead in that. And it was scary to go distributed and say, you know what, we're just going to send, let everyone work from home or wherever they want to work from whenever they want to work. And, uh, it, it was a life changing experience for me as an individual, because until I did it as a person, I didn't realize I could also lead it as a leader. I had yeah. to experience that there are still really important things that can happen in a space like mm -hmm. having a physical space. You get to, you get to make it really culturally dynamic now. Like you're right. The jig is up. I can be productive at home at probably more so than I can be in the office. So telling your people, we want you in, you want your butts in the seats because we want you to be productive is, is gonna, they're going to be like, well, it's time for me to look for another job, but you can say, we want the really important things that benefit you too to happen in this office. And we're going to create those experiences because they're still really relevant and important to all of us. And that's what you make the physical space about. Not, I need you to sit in your office with the door closed all day and work. That, that is just not going to work, resonate at all. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And for those companies that are fully distributed and, and don't have a home base, don't have a home office, which is where we had transitioned to. So now we have employees all over the world and can't, can't ask them to come into the office on Wednesdays, right? Like we just can't do that. Uh, so what we've gone to and what many organizations like us go to is we do create team retreats where we bring, we fly everyone into a location so we can have a week of really deep, meaningful relationships that you, that you miss from not having an office. And I will say there is nothing that can substitute for meaningful face-to-face uh, conversations and interactions. And so while I love being distributed, we all walked away, you know, we went distributed in 2019 before, uh, actually 2018, before the pandemic actually happened. And like we were predicting it or something and we weren't, um, but we had gone distributed and then we were going to have a retreat and we couldn't because there was a pandemic around. And so we had to wait. And so we waited two, three years, finally had our uh, retreat and we all walked away with going like we felt more connected. There was more collaboration. There was greater clarity all because we had that one week and you ride off that momentum and it's really powerful. And then you try to ask yourself, now you're back distributed. How do you sustain that connection, that collaboration, that clarity that you got for that one week after the fact for the next year until the next one year, you know, 
week-long retreat? How do you sustain in a digital environment that kind of connection? You use the cues. So, you know, I'm not a body language expert, but I know that you can get 80% more in communication from body language than you can just from talking to someone like this. Sure. Um, Learning that live carries over into a digital environment. So you'll be able to see things about the people and understand them at a much deeper level when you can spend some time with them in person. I remember way back in the day, like we're talking late 90s, (laughs) when I was sent all over the country to do these site visits for my firm, um, those were natural team building, like sitting and eating three meals a day with someone and listening to all their personal problems and, and the phone calls they make to their kids at night before they the kids get put to bed and all those things have an enormous we we you know I would say corporate America and then it trickles down to everybody else um, really have not put enough value on the informal relationship building that happens in those scenarios and those things we should find ways to do regardless um, yeah. they are you know there can be many opportunities to do that over the course of a year so that you're not going a whole year till the next retreat. Um, but when you have a foundation of understanding people at that much deeper level, it carries over to a digital environment better. If you're just starting, like I know people that have been hired into places during the pandemic and have never met any of their people in person that work there. Yeah. Um, and the kind of epiphany of that when they finally get to do so is pretty amazing. Right. So Yes, we have to create those scenarios. We can still, you know, if you're worried about costs, we can we can make we can do those very cost effectively, but they still need to happen to be thriving in the culture. And you're right, like you know, we have hired people who have never met anyone on the team before and then we had this retreat and it is this kind of revelation of who who we really are because it's hard to know that through text communication and asynchronous communication all the time, even over video calls, it can be hard to know what is a person really, really like. And I I struggled with this when we transitioned from being an in-office team on site and going distributed that I am very, um, fairly charismatic and jovial and happy. And people, when people talk to me in person, they're like, oh yeah, James is barely ever angry. Like he doesn't get upset at everything. But when I communicate over text, I'm shorter, I'm more precise, I'm more to the point. uh, And it can come off if I don't go go above and beyond trying to change the way I write, it can come off as I is 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 James upset? Is he angry? Is and other people on the team who knew me would be like, no, read it like this. <laughs> like they'd have to kind of coach team members to be like, hey, if you read it like this, that's his voice. That's how you, if you that's how you can receive it right. And so you're right. Hearing getting those cues and those contexts from that's personal can carry over into the virtual. Right. But you kind of have to lay the foundation for it. Agreed. I want to ask you something else that you you mentioned previously when you're talking about uh, helping teams, uh, you know, giving them proper career paths and and knowing like, hey, where did where are we headed? Where are we going? I want to know what your your uh, advice is to say a small business. This is something that we struggled with in the early days. You know, you you start off with you know, two, three people, you may grow to eight and 10. At that point, you're still really small. And the idea of a career path is almost non-existent because we don't know what we're going to need yet 
until we get a little further along. And even then, we don't know what that role is going to look like and we can't define career paths. And so, you know, for us who hire engineers and marketers and support staff, uh, it can be hard as a leader in a small business to lay out a clear path to an employee who's saying, hey, I want to know what's next. And this, the leader is going, and I've been in this position where I'm like, I, I don't know yet. Like we're too, we're, you know, a few years ago, we were just a startup. Like we didn't even know if this was going to succeed and now it's growing and it's succeeding. I don't know what's next. What's your advice to a small business who wants to give their team and their, you know, their staff some sense of growth and sense of movement and a sense of a career path. But honestly, in some businesses at a certain sizes, there is not a direct and clear path that we can promise. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. So first of all, I guess, let's not pigeonhole people just to serve ourselves. That's number one, right? Absolutely. So I need you doing this for the rest of your life because this benefits me the most is not a good, not a good way to go. Um, second of all, be thoughtful about business strategy. Like a lot of small businesses kind of always have their pants on fire and they're in the business getting it done instead of sitting back and saying, how should this best be done? Where am I really going with this? How am I going to get there? Who do I need on my team to make it happen? Do, being really thoughtful about business strategy will help you inform your people strategy. Then keep a regular discourse with the people you've got on your team about what they most want, given that you're telling them what the business strategy is. You know, what skills do you love using every day? What would you love to explore as far as different skills? How can we support you in that? Do we have a place for you to do that on a regular basis? Those, you know, a regular discourse. But I've seen companies go, small companies go years without ever having those conversations. And then they get to, you know, round three of funding and the people are like, but I've been doing this crap I don't want to do for, for the last three years and I'm miserable and I, I, it isn't what I signed up for. And that even the CEOs, like you can, you can have to take the whole, all the reins in your hands in the beginning, but to be truly successful, you're going to start giving those reins up and giving them to people that are really excited about having those reins. And you don't have to be the CEO if you don't want to be. You get to be your, put to your highest and best use as well. So yeah, holistically, what is the business strategy? How does it marry to my people? And what do my people want in that strategy? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I think that's sound advice. And, and if one of it is just having the conversation and being yeah. honest and an open. What do you want and what, what can our organization fully sustain? Like that, just being open and honest. Uh, I, I know the trap that I got to early on was I wanted to give people hope and I believed it, right? And so you think, well, you know, there's places for, you know, this senior level, this or a lead, this or a manager here, I assume we're, you know, we're going to grow and eventually that's going to be. And then things don't always pan out that way. And the organization shifts or it pivots and it changes a little bit. And all of a sudden that position that you were like, I think we can get you there. And I think if that's what you want, we can do that. And then all of a sudden that position is no longer there. I think the, the mistake that I made is I hung on to the eventual possibility for too long instead of having honest conversations regularly saying here's how the here's how the dynamics are shifting how do you want to shift like what's what knowing that this is the truth 
what do you want out of this organization? What do you want to get out of that? And I had, I, I didn't have those conversations early on and, you know, paid the price for that. And now later I go, okay, now I know, right? Like I know, I don't make promises. I know I can't keep first of first and foremost. Uh, but I lay out the, the eventual possibilities and I right. say, and if you want one of these, we can do that. But these are all eventual possibilities and we will grow you in whichever direction you want. And then the honest thing is, eventually, we may come to the conclusion that there's no place for you to grow here any longer. And that's okay. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I'm encouraged to kind of hear your advice on that and think through. I know there's small businesses listening who struggle with similar things. But, you know, there's also people that are incredibly talented that come to work for us and we know they belong somewhere else. I mean, that happens all the time. You know, you have enormous talents that we aren't using effectively or we don't need given where we're going. And I want you to really be able to use all those talents. You know, giving people soft landings like that is actually a blessing. It's not, it's not a negative thing. It's okay to say what we started out with is not where we are now. And there's just, we don't see how what you want for your own career and what we have to offer you are the same. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of us when we start out in small business, especially uh, especially as bootstrappers, right, that, that you know, we didn't get we didn't raise funding. We just kind of we worked our side hustle for as long as we could until it was made enough money where we could quit and focus on it. And then we built our teams and we kept going. Those of us who kind of live in that, we I think we all start with this kind of utopian idea like this is my family. And as I hire people, they're never leaving. I'm hiring people for life. And all of us want that. They are your family and they are your friends. (laughs) I need to see them. (laughs) It's true. It's very true. Yeah. Like I think (laughs) might not fit in at some point. It's true. It's true. But we have this idea, like when we hire people, we want them to last forever. And I, you know, I felt that way when I started, it was like, man, when you're, when you're here, like we became friends that we, you know, especially cause we were co-located. We, we, you know, we ate together, we played together, we worked together. We, we spent so much time together and you think, oh, these people are gonna be with us forever. And so we were like, we want to be a place where people will come to work forever. And I like, uh, you know, Netflix for all of its troubles that it's been going through, Early on, one of their leaders said, what we wanted Netflix to be is a great company to be a great place to be from. You wanted people who like when you left Netflix, people were like, oh, you were for Netflix. Oh, yeah, we want you on our team. Like and I like and that changed my perspective. And I started to say, you know what? Like, yeah, I want people to stay here as long as they want to stay here, as long as they're fulfilled and they love what they're doing and they love who they're doing it with. That's great. But eventually, if they're going to leave, that's great. But I, in the end, I want that. I want my company to be a great place to be from when it's all said and done. That they feel like they've been empowered and that they grew for the next chapter in their lives. And so, uh, I love that kind of the spirit of that. Yeah, I agree uh, with that. Let me ask you something about. You know, one of the things that we also struggle with as we build our businesses, uh, and I, I struggle with this. I, I talked to this with, about with a previous guest. Um, you know, I am a cis white male. Uh, I live in an area that is primarily uh, white. 
And so uh, when we hired, you know, we hire the people who are closest in proximity to us, especially when you're hiring co-located team. And so after a while, you look around and you realize, oh, man, my company looks exactly like me. Like they're they're all exactly like me. Um, how, and and not intentional. There was no, you know, it, it was certainly, uh, you know, whether we call that a an unconscious bias or uh, or just familiarity or just proximity, uh, you realize, hey, we're not as good as we could be if we all have the same experiences, and the same understandings, and the same philosophies, and all of that stuff is the same. We're not as good as we could be, and so we started to shift and make a change and said, we want to be very intentional about how we hire and who we hire and why we hire. And I wonder what can companies do to create more diverse and equitable and inclusive cultures so that they can start to make headway on that path? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit different for everyone and the, the issues are different for everyone. So with, first of all, know where you're standing. So do it doesn't cost a lot of money to do an assessment. It is very hard to opine on your own culture. Very hard. Effectively, anyway. You can, you can opine about it all day long. It's not going to be very effective. So get some kind of a cultural assessment done on how your people perceive the culture and perceive their place in it and how they're experiencing that. Um, do a little homework on your HR data. So take a look at your data and see who gets rewarded, who gets benefited, who gets the informal opportunities, who gets coaching, who gets whatever, who you're hiring, who you're promoting, all those things. Um, and see if there are any differences by demographic, assuming you're not all white cisgendered males. Um, and then, you know, I've had a lot of conversations because this is a, this is the perfect conversation for the great resignation. Um, we're doing keynotes right now all over the world. So this is a universal thing, which really excites me because I get to understand what's happening over there too. Um, but people want to come to a place where they know they're going to be able to be themselves. Even young, let's say 35 and under white cisgendered males, look at websites and see who leadership is and see who the people in, in the firm are. And if they don't see any diversity, they're not that interested either. So it is becoming compelling to keep, to get and keep any talent that you have greater levels of diversity in your firms. So what I would say though, is be very, very careful to not clean your own house before you bring more underrepresented groups into your house. And what do I mean by that? Make sure your culture is really open and transparent and has great communications and understands that people need different things from us as a firm and as leaders. Understand that I'm going to clean up my equity act if it's not completely there yet. Understand that I need to understand what a full inclusion experience is for each person here before I bring people that are different into it and say, I don't fully understand you. And we don't really have a culture where you can tell me that really effectively. So they, they're at a disadvantage. We see, you know, so let's take it. Let's take an industry I work with all the time. Let's take accounting firms. Accounting firms, usually a sea of white, no matter where they are geographically. There, there is a larger Asian population coming into accounting because ex the services in accounting firms have expanded to include things like IT consulting and things like that. Um, but 
black Americans typically don't go into accounting. Um, women go into accounting at 50% or just slightly above 50% when they leave school. But by the time they reach manager, senior manager level, two thirds of them are gone. <laughs> so that issue and how you handle it is very different than how do we attract black Americans into our industry. So it depends on where you sit currently, obviously, what you're trying to accomplish, but start with your house first, cleaning your house before you invite people in. Optimize that culture and make it ready for diversity before you bring diversity in. When I, you know, when I think about uh, diversity and equity and inclusion, you know, those those phrases, diversity seems pretty obvious, right? Like diversity is a pretty easy thing to kind of look around and say, are we diverse, right? That's easy, an easy one. Um, Equity, I understand as well. There's a, there almost seems a kind of a metric that you can put on it to see like who's getting promoted and who has opportunities, who's getting coaching, who, who has the, their boss's ear and who doesn't ever get their boss's ear for one reason or another. And you can kind of look at that. Uh, inclusion is one of those ones that seems almost ambiguous to a lot of people. And I think for those listening, I'd love to hear how you define and think about inclusion in, a, in, a, in an organization's culture. Right. So a couple of things. Am I a party to my own progress? Do, am I a part of the conversations around what happens to my career? Um, do I get access? Access is huge. Do I have access to the informal relationship building with people that have juice in our company? Do I have access to the best opportunities that benefit my skill sets? Do I have access to developing my skill sets in a variety of ways, both informal and formal? Um, do I get, you know, inclusion and belonging are sometimes used interchangeably, but do I fit in culturally with everything that happens both informally and formally? Do I feel like I can be fully myself, express my opinion, do my best work here and feel supported that I can't because I'm getting the support I need to do my best work? Those are the kinds of things that define an inclusion experience. What people often think is, at a surface level, that inclusion is getting invited to the right parties professionally. It's not just that. You know, one of the biggest things I use as an example of not being fully included is when we don't feel comfortable giving people constructive criticism or constructive feedback to benefit what they do next in their careers with us. We just don't have the conversation at all. I went through, I'm a partner at, at a big four accounting firm in nine years, which is pretty accelerated. But I went through that whole nine years with everyone who gave me feedback, just saying, keep doing what you're doing. Now, I might have delusions of grandeur, but I am far from perfect. And there were many things I did wrong, but no one was willing to have that conversation with me. Um, that is part of inclusion. That is saying I might feel really uncomfortable giving constructive feedback to, let's say, an Hispanic uh, Spanish as a first language person because our communication styles are different, whatever the issue is, right? It is imperative to a full inclusion experience that I'm willing to have that conversation. It requires us as leaders to get vulnerable, to make sure that we are creating an environment where someone feels fully part of the, the, the fabric of the culture. And if we can't do all of those things, then then you're you're giving someone a very small experience and not a full what I call inclusion experience. I love it. And I appreciate the clarity around inclusion to think of it more broadly and more deeply. Uh, I think uh, that that's going to help a lot of people as they think through their own 
DEI strategies and they think about what is our culture as they start to, you know, I know you want a lot of times you need to, especially depending the large, probably the larger your company is, the more necessary sometimes to bring outside people in to do evaluation because you just can't see it all. There's so many nooks and crannies that you miss that you don't understand everything. I mean, smaller organization, uh, maybe less necessary, but still uh, self-evaluation is the first part, first step of saying, what do we ultimately want? And uh, I think these definitions help organizations who are thinking about that start to self-evaluate a little bit better and, and start to assess those things. So I think that's awesome. One last question as we start to wrap up, uh, what can I do and those listening as leaders to be better at leading diverse teams. We, we, so the, the in general, we're going to bring people in. We're going to, we're all, there's many of us who are on a, uh, on a mission to become more, uh, accessible, more diverse, more inclusive, more equitable. And we're, we're, we're looking, we're putting our job applications in more underserved areas to bring in applicants that we otherwise would not have access to so that we can do this. But once they're on the team, right, and you have a diverse organization, you've brought them and we've talked a little bit about this, right? Clean your own house, like take care of your house. But that's still an ongoing process. What can we do as leaders to be better at leading these diverse teams that we're all trying to build? So one of the things that we use at the firm quite a bit is kind of, why are these things so challenging, right? Why is, why is culture people so challenging for people? It's challenging because we can create immensely good strategies and we can even implement them on a firm-wide level. But what they really require at the end of the day is each and every person having a high level of self-reflection and being accountable to their own thoughts, behaviors, and actions. And that is the hard part. So what do we do about that? Don't stop doing the strategies. Don't give up and say, I'm just going to wring my hands. It's not worth it. Instead, bake the skill sets of someone who is a truly self-reflective emotionally intelligent leader, emotional intelligence is huge for us in this firm, um, into what you hold leaders accountable to. Make it part of their key performance indicators um, and get them leveled up on their own individual emotional intelligence journey. So emotional intelligence, for those of you who have not been made aware of it, is I I understand my own emotions and manage them effectively. And then I observe the, the emotions of the people around me and I help them manage their own emotions as well. As leaders, if we can do that, 95% of us would be really good leaders. So if you think about it in the DEI space or just a general cultural space, to the extent that I can fully understand myself, what makes me uncomfortable, what makes me hesitate, what, ha- what makes me paralyzed to actually act or say anything to anybody, and then manage that in a way that allows other people to do the same, you will have a way better, more high-performing team that feels fully engaged all the time. That is gold. Uh, I hope everyone pays attention and, and listen to that. Uh, Trisha, thank you so much for being on the Leading to Fulfillment podcast and sharing all of these thoughts with us today. Uh, I want to give you the last word. How can people find more information about you, your organization, and, and what you're doing? You can see me on LinkedIn at Trisha Dow, D-H-O, and you can see us on our website, empoweredlc.com. Awesome. Uh, We'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Trisha, thank you again for being on the show today. 
Thanks for having me. I want to say a big thank you to Trisha for joining me on this episode of Leading to Fulfillment, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Everything we mentioned, including a full transcript of the show, can be found over on our website, and you can access it anytime by visiting leadingtofulfillment.com slash 018. Also on that website, you can subscribe to our newsletter. There we'll let you know when new episodes drop, as well as send you original and curated content on leadership, managing teams, and finding fulfillment. I hope you'll check it out. Um, After a a long period of stagnation in science, art, philosophy, politics, and more, 14th century Europe saw a rebirth of new ideas that flourished across the continent and the world, forever changing the way people thought about the human experience. As you probably know, I'm talking about the Renaissance. What sparked this period of unprecedented innovation, the world-changing era that brought us da Vinci's The Mona Lisa, Descartes' foundation of philosophy, Copernicus' discovery of the heliocentric solar system, and so much more. In a word, diversity. The Renaissance began as a cultural movement centered around humanism or the idea of embracing human achievements, but innovation didn't truly flourish until ideas spread across borders thanks to Gutenberg's printing press, invented during the mid-15th century. For the first time in history, people from different ethnic cultures' backgrounds uh, were able to join the conversation as their ideas compounded, breakthroughs, and discoveries built an unstoppable momentum. Our world has never been the same since. Diversity is including people from a variety of ethnicities, races, genders, ages, and sexual orientations, as well as people with different educational backgrounds and life experiences. It's become a bit of a buzzword lately, but diversity at your company is endlessly beneficial. There are plenty of factors that make diversity so powerful in business settings where creativity, insight, uh, foresight, problem solving, and market analysis are paramount. Bringing a diverse group of minds together is one of the best examples of synergy or a whole, uh, or a whole that's, that's, that's greater than the sum of its parts. A diverse team, more so than a homogenous one, will, one, question assumptions. Diverse teams bring a whole host of unique perspectives to the table. Because of this, there's no baseline for assumptions. Every idea is questioned with a great intention to detail because everyone on the team has different viewpoints. Two, they offer creative solutions. Why do so many artists travel uh, and spend time in nature or strike up conversations with strangers when their creative wells are running dry? Because creativity is born of the previously unknown, new ideas, experiences, perspectives, and insights. Diverse team members who collaborate effectively can offer more creative and unprecedented solutions. Three, they make better decisions. Diverse teams quite literally bring more ideas to the table. With more options to assess, test, and choose from, your chances of making the right call will increase. In fact, one study showed that diverse teams make better decisions a whopping 87% of the time. They also understand broader markets. Understanding and speaking to a target audience are are vital in, in business directly impacting uh, the products and services you offer and how you market them. 
If your team is homogenous, their understanding of potential customers is very narrow. On the other hand, a diverse team offers a much broader understanding of people, including their wants, needs, and pain points. It has been clear in recent years that diversity is a must, but it's not enough to be merely open to diversity. Companies that want the best talent pool must attract diverse candidates and overcome their own biases. Creating a company culture that demonstrates respect and inclusion is the most impactful way to attract talent from all backgrounds and walks of life. Employees talk, so companies that make every voice heard and treat people as equals will stand out from the crowd. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join me on the next episode. And until then, may your businesses be successful as you lead your teams to fulfillment.